0: Welcome back to Recorded Conversations, the podcast that's dedicated to compassionately considering all perspectives while engaging in authentic, connected dialogue. I'm Danielle Kingstrom. hear this recorded conversation. My next guest, he shall remain anonymous, but he goes by the Twitter handle porn Star Pastor. and I discovered him probably the same way we discover people on Twitter. Somebody retweeted something he had to say, and for me, it was intriguing and controversial. He supports sex workers. He encourages that we love and not judge sex workers, and he is an encourager of ethical porn use. We dive into such a great conversation that I just want to share a little sneak peek of it with you right now.
1: Our faith has been co-opted. Going back to Jesus and Pilate, what we cannot say is that what Jesus was about was a political agenda. We cannot say that. Jesus precludes us from saying that. And yet, if the assertion is that in order for me to be on Jesus' side, I also need to participate in this. Particular political agenda, we know that we have just set up something that is anti Christ and anti God.
0: Now, if you know me, you know I have a tendency to balk back at people. I challenge people, I ask questions. Sometimes I may appear a little insensitive to those that I have connected with and befriended because I disagree with them. But Porn Star Pastor allowed me the space to challenge him and really tried to meet me as a human being. And it did take a long time to get him to join me on recorded conversations. But he had a little bit of a backstory as to why he didn't. And he shares that towards the end, which allows me to say that I got to pop porn star pastors cherry in podcasting, and that I'm officially the first interview. We talk about Christian nationalism, Christian sexual ethic, church scandal, we go around and discuss whose sins are worse. We call on the Apostle Paul. He shares riveting rereadings of the Gospels in ways that I hadn't interpreted before. All of this conversation is so full of fruit that I know you're just going to love it. And I can't wait to hear your feedback. And you know how much I do love when you let me know what this show means to you, and how it's impacting you. And just as a reminder, if you'd like to reach out, if you have any questions, if you'd like to be a guest, you can contact me. I utilize all of the free services that I can. So you can find me on social media, on Facebook at Danielle Kingstrom, Twitter and Instagram at DKingstrom. And if you want a little bit more spice and of this Minnesota nice, you can check out my OnlyFans page at Naked Tree Advisor, where I also share erotic embodiment advising content and more. Listeners, as always, I ask you to compassionately consider the perspective of the porn star pastor. Enjoy this episode. So Porn Star Pastor, I discovered you on Twitter, somebody I was following retweeted something um, and I was really struck and um, happily refreshed with seeing someone with a pastor with their name talking about porn in a positive way and sex workers in a positive way. So I'm wondering if you can just tell the audience a little bit about like how you do things on Twitter under your handle Porn Star Pastor and what your mission is.
1: Thank you. Um, and it's been it's been good to connect with you. I know that we've, you know, had a few exchanges here and there and talked over direct message a bit. And so definitely a pleasure to be joining the podcast. In terms of what I'm doing on Twitter, so I'm pastor educated, as, as I like to say it. I studied to be a pastor and received my bachelor's degree to do so. And, you know, largely have done either like volunteer or part-time ministry in church and have had you know, some growing concerns about the way that Jesus gets represented by Christians. That's really what led me into this work, um, kind of somewhat out of the blue, if I'm being honest. You know, I, I, sex work or porn wasn't a particular interest to me in terms of, you know, wanting to get involved. But, you know, I, I and I don't remember specifically what precipitated it, but, you know, I just had this thought of like, who is, who is reaching out to porn stars? and sex workers, and not meeting them with condemnation, but meeting them with the love of Jesus. And, you know, at the time I'd heard of like Triple X Church, you know, I think we all have at one point or another, and I knew that their primary mission was basically helping women to exit the adult industry, um, which is all fine and good. And, and, you know, likely there are individuals who do want to leave that industry. But as I considered, you know, how is it that Jesus was being represented to This particular demographic of folks, uh, it concerned me that there weren't voices out there who were encouraging and and positive and and made space for them to have some measure of faith without having to leave that profession. Because I think that it's problematic when we create those kinds of obstacles in regards to someone's faith. And, you know, I think the Bible certainly has a lot to say, and and there's some nuanced conversation in there about the right balance between faith and, you know, the types of behaviors that we choose to engage in. But at the end of the day, for me, it really comes down to does Jesus love porn stars and sex workers? And my answer to that is absolutely, 100%. And so, you know, I have a responsibility to to do the same. And I'll say to Danielle, when I first was on Twitter and kind of first started this work. I think at the time I really was thinking about it in like evangelism types of terms. Like I, I wanted to come here and and help convince porn stars that uh, Jesus was a good God. You know, one of the questions that just personally, and I didn't put it out much on Twitter, I kind of asked around it here and there, but one of the questions that I had was, is it possible for a porn star to be a Christian? And over time that, that question, as I dug into, you know, what I know about the Bible, what I know about theology, what I know about Jesus, you know, having spent 20 plus years in the church and studied to go and and do this professionally, that answer grew to be resounding. Yes, they can be Christians. And not only that, that saying so is critical to how I understand the gospel and how I think the Bible teaches the gospel. And And I even think how most Christians think about the gospel if they're willing to separate Jesus from the Christian culture that so many of us have been brought up in. And so, you know, it didn't take long before I really understood my mission to change from bringing Jesus to those who are active in the adult industry to encouraging faith where I found it. And so I I, I no longer presume that I'm, I'm doing some work to bring this to performers in the adult industry Uh, as opposed to being open and honest about my own faith and making space for others to also have that faith, even when it looks very different from what I was taught faith should look like, and even when it looks very different from my own faith. So that's kind of where I'm at at this point is I want to be a helpful voice to folks who are following after Jesus, and especially when they're doing so from very typically... Unchristian spaces. We'll say it that way. I, I don't. I don't like that terminology in this moment, but I. I don't. <laughs> I can't think of the right wording for it. In spaces where I guess folks aren't accustomed to faith being an open part of the conversation. We'll say it that way. Mm,
0: that's good. That's good. Yeah, I was really drawn to that. Just the positive reinforcement and asking the question. And I think a lot of other people are asking similar questions, like, can you be a Christian and have an OnlyFans page? And can you be a Christian and engage in polyamory? And we're seeing so much of an explosion of juxtaposing Christianity with what we can and can't be and what we can and can't do. And so it's just refreshing when we see more and more people willing to consider the nuance of all of the components of Christianity and can see that it's kind of an unlimited space holder for all types of people and all Phases of people's lives and all evolutions, because I think it's safe to say, uh, and, and there's always an exception, but most people who are in sex work industry, they don't want that to be a lifetime thing. They are, you know, doing what feels good to them in the moment or works best for them in the moment. And to pass a judgment on somebody's choice in that time is just, it's fruitless when we consider Everything that we go through, and all of the mistakes we make, or all of the different decisions that we make that we wouldn't have considered. So, I'm on board with this this idea that we don't really need to judge them, and we can include them under Christ, and and still love them and offer them the same grace and dignity that you know we're called to give as Christians. So, I just want to so jump on there and that applaud we've that.
1: Received. Yeah, and that we've received as Christians. And that's really, you know, as I started to grapple with some of that myself, I realized that I found in moments my own theology problematic. You know, I found that I was having trouble reconciling what uh, to me seems fundamental to the faith in that we are all sinful before God and all equally in need of the grace of Jesus and that Jesus meets each of us where we are. I think what, you know, one of the areas that that for me really needed more examination was in the area of how I look at my own sin versus how I look at someone else's sin. You know, to your point, we all have a context. We all have a background. And sometimes that background has led us to, you know, places where your typical kind of Christian subculture is going to say, yes, we're okay with that, right? And that can be any number of things. Um, That can be anything from a you know, firefighter, to a police officer, to a Marine, you know, a sniper, um, to a politician, to a Wall Street banker. And generally we look upon these professions as being uh, congruent with Christian faith. Uh, But we also know that there's many motives that could drive someone into these various professions. You know, it's not, it's not lost on me that any number of, of men who have been raised in the church uh, have developed a sort of uh, militant type of mindset with regard to how culture ought to be protected and, you know, what it means to advocate for the United States of America in this country. And those motives can become problematic when we're talking about what's glorifying to God and what's right, what's sin and what's not. And so much of that just takes place in our own hearts. Simultaneously, I know my own sin. You know, I, I know the, the things about me that don't line up with who Jesus was and, and how I understand the Bible to talk about what it means to be a Christian. And as a you know white-presenting, I, I say that because I'm like half Mexican, but you'd never know just looking at me, white-presenting, heterosexual, married male, you know, my sins of pride and arrogance and ego and defensiveness and all these types of things that, that I find myself battling against There's plenty of room made for me to be human in those ways and still be a part of the church. And on the flip side of that, it seems to me to be incredibly hypocritical to then turn around and say that someone who has sins different from my own, you know, perhaps sins in ways that I find distasteful or or sins that I would can easily say, you know, like, oh, I, I wouldn't do that, that God's grace wouldn't be offered equally to them to me is theologically problematic it conflicts with so much of what the Bible teaches about salvation and grace. And while I have reservations about how we talk about the Apostle Paul, his own writings reinforce that, right? And so the typical kind of delineating factors of identity that were present in ancient Israel were broken down as being ultimately meaningless when considering our shared faith in Jesus. And so it's why Paul can say there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Today, that doesn't, that doesn't strike us as particularly provocative, but to you know Jews at the time who uh, began to put their faith in Jesus and, and really saw Jesus as the continuation of the faith that was established with their own scriptures uh, in the law and the prophets, um, that was incredibly problematic. It was incredibly provocative for Paul to make such a claim and to oppose you know, other apostles like Peter, when it came to how much uh, or into what extent those who were not under the law had to follow the law. So it becomes problematic for me then to to act out of accordance with that precedent that's been set by Jesus and by the uh, earliest Christians. And certainly there's, you know, much more to unpack there regarding the teachings that you know the, uh, the early uh, followers of Jesus taught regarding what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But at the end of the day, what we can say for sure is that we are all equally simple, that we're all made in the image of God, and that the whole narrative arc of the Bible is that what separates us from God is ultimately and finally insufficient in the face of the sacrifice that God Himself makes. So hmm. hopefully, hopefully that makes sense. And I'll,
0: that's that's good. Going back to, I mean, even the sin and what you said about how sometimes we focus on other people's sins more than our own. Mm-hmm. And I, what was coming to mind was, I, I believe the Apostle Paul when he talked about he would boast that his sins were the worst of the sins. And I remember thinking when somehow that that passage hit me in a certain way, and it, it just made me recall all the times I was pointing out the splinter in the other person's eye and failing to see the, the big old log in my own. And it's so easy for us to do that, to separate ourselves in some kind of a morally superior way and say, well, at least I didn't do that. So I'm not really that bad. And that person does need to be judged because society says, and the Bible says that what that person is doing is bad. And when I think about what sex means to me, for instance, I, uh, for me, sex has always represented love. And I realized I had a different foundation in teachings on what sex meant, but from there, growing to understand that knowing that's kind of at the nugget of what it is i never had this negative viewpoint of porn growing up or even in full adulthood even when i went through a prudish evangelical phase it was i i understood that porn was depicting possibilities of a- action of love and for me i used it as a teaching tool no i realized there's this huge gap in people um, registering that this isn't realistic and n- merely acting and entertainment. But when I went back to the Bible after I really truly embodied this idea of a, an erotic theology, I I always go back and I can't help but see that sex workers sometimes, and I've heard some of them say this, they are doing a service to love. And that I think about how lonely the world is right now. And sometimes all it takes is a momentary connection to remind a person that they're still alive and that they have meaning and purpose. And so if you're willing to go deeper than just the surface of what you're seeing and you want to judge there's so much intention backed by a love and a desire to be loved and to be a service to someone that, I mean, how could we think that Jesus was like anti-sex or anti-prostitution when given the root of it is backed in love? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it does. And you, know, you, bring, up, you bring up some good points there. Number one, I think that it's important that we align on the fact that sex is God's gift to humanity, right? Um, there was, and I think about it along the same lines of like taste or flavor of food. Like there's no reason that, that food needed to taste good, but God, you know, depending on your theology, where I believe it's like, God made food taste good. He gave us these bodies and these abilities to experience his good creation. And the same is true of sex. It's not uh, lost on me that the first commandment that God gives to humanity after creation is to be fruitful and multiply. Well, people don't multiply without having sex. And so God commands sex. And at the same time, the the Bible is because what we're learning about through the Bible is God through the context of cultures that we're very far removed from. It's important that we acknowledge how varied the Bible is on the topic of sex if you were to walk into any number of evangelical Christian churches today which is my tradition that I came from what you're likely to hear is that God's ideal for marriage and for sex is one man and one woman and of course the, the kind of typical thing that we point back to for that is Adam and Eve but when you actually look at the some of the key characters in the Bible sex is very complicated and very Relative to the culture in which these circumstances are taking place. Even, even such that, you know, acts uh, like, like you have prostitutes who are counted as heroes uh, in biblical history, you have uh, characters in the Bible who pose as prostitutes in order to achieve a just solution. And at the end of the story, the Bible lifts up the individual who's posing as a prostitute as the one who, who committed the lesser sin. You have Old Testament kings, including David, King David, who the Bible says uh, had a heart after God's own. And these kings had, you know, many concubines and, and wives and basically harems of women whom they could sleep with and reproduce with. Certainly, we could say that that's problematic, and, and in our culture, I think uh, obviously, most Christians would say so. And, you know, I think that it's difficult for us to even imagine what would a world today look like were to be common that um, powerful men, for example, have uh, many wives and concubines. Economically, though, in the Bible, that makes a, a lot of sense uh, that that powerful men would would have basically, you know, these individuals to their providing for and facilitating a living for in one way or another in, in the Bible doesn't necessarily comment on the morality of those things. It's much more concerned in many cases with what's happening on a person to person level, which is why, for example, you know, David's actions with Bathsheba are so problematic. It's not at all that David was like violating a marriage oath that that he had taken. Um, he, he still had concubines at the time. You know, what's one more? Except that, you know, David ultimately uh, has this woman's husband killed in order to uh, continue the, the relationship that he was pursuing with her. There's all kinds of power dynamics that are very interesting and problematic. And yet we still say that David was a man after God's own heart. And, and certainly David's own reign as king of Israel has significant ramifications for how we understand Jesus. And those things matter. It matters that we name, that the Bible doesn't take, doesn't always take a particular view on what is and isn't right from a sex standpoint. It's just true that human history and culture, and I would posit faith, require us to Have some imagination for for what God is doing in our midst now, whether it aligns to what we think might be a particular ideal in the Bible. I'm all for ideals. I'm a very idealistic person in many ways. But when ideals start to affect the way that we're able to love one another and the ideals get in the way of that love, they become very damaging. And that's what concerns me about the kind of typical Christian approach to sex. Now, for me, I've been married at this point, coming up on 17 years to, to one woman. I was not a virgin when we married. I had my first sexual experience at the age of 14 prior to becoming a Christian. And once I became a Christian, you know, I was kind of all in on the, on the purity culture and whatnot. And so abiding by the typical evangelical Christian sexual ethic has not been difficult for me. That said, uh, I do understand how damaging and alienating the insistence on that ethic has been to folks who otherwise believe in and love Jesus. And I can't, that's something that to me flies directly in the face of the gospel, Right. When we start um, elevating someone's sin, whatever that may be, as more weighty, as more significant, as more tangible than the grace of God offered to us in Jesus Christ, I have a problem with that. And so it cannot be that someone's sexual sin is able to separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I just don't think that any of the Biblical authors would would be able to affirm that, including Paul, whom arguably makes the strongest case uh, for a you know, one-man, one-woman sexual ethic. Even Paul, I don't think, would be able to maintain that this particular sin can ultimately separate us from the love of Jesus. I just don't see that. Like when I read Romans eight. And Paul says, "There's, there's not therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus." We end that chapter talking about how neither, neither height nor death, angels nor demons. and He goes through this list. Are we supposed to say that sexual sins can, can then separate us from Christ Jesus?
0: Mm. And I just
1: don't think that that can be the
0: case. And I understand. And what, what's crazy is, despite knowing how problematic the purity ideals are. I can still look at it and realize there was an intention backed by love at some point within some cultural time frame where it was beneficial to have these ideas and to utilize these practices as a way to safeguard things. But when we move forward and we see that, especially even with the sexual sins, when we have sexual exploitation and abuse, we need something. we need some kind of rule or some something out there that says, but if you do something bad with it, you will be punished. And I think we got into the habit of going, well, now I'm going to decide what more is punishable and what more is I consider a exploitive sex and and how can I confine it more? And I think people just go after this power and control narrative and they want to confine all of the, the people down to these certain rules because that's what works best for them. And I understand why we want... To insist on an idea that you should be separated from sexual sin when we talk about molestation, when we talk about rape, we talk about assaults and, and all of the, the the negative stuff that can go with it when, when sex is used incorrectly, unhealthily, unlovingly. But without being able to let go of an allowance for that, it's like so many people can't then reconcile these other sexual sins, and that's why we need this clean way of having sex. We need everyone to do it because its it, it seems like everyone always jumps to – oh well, sex can be bad i mean i find that it's difficult to talk about eroticism and to talk about an erotic theology and erotic nature of god because people automatically just jump to the furthest ex- extreme of how that that sexual idea can be exploited and so so much of it is backed by fear and i think you're right when we look over at the gospel and we can see that it is so so contrary what is backed in all of the actions in following Christ, that if we understand the importance of sex and the sacredness of it, that we shouldn't have to worry about the the fear frequency level of it. And we're going to just focus on the love frequency of it and develop it. But again, when, when we can't have some kind of way to punish people for doing wrong and have that justice That is imposed when someone is abused or attacked, then, you know, what do we do is we we continue with the limitations and the labels and the purity culture continues because we have to protect our children. I wonder if you see the same thing as I do is that what this purity culture is unveiling to us right now. I mean, it just one after the other is the Me Too movement within the church. Um, and all of this stuff is coming to surface with Ravi Zacharias and um, what was the other Lentz guy. And um, we're hearing about all of these cover ups coming back to surface. And so, when is the church going to start to incorporate sex education in a proper way, if at all? Or maybe an renounce themselves from having to be responsible what do you think we can we can move towards a solution with this does the church need to get into sex or maybe get away from it
1: yeah that's a that's a good question I don't know that I'm prepared to offer well-rounded response but I'll kind of think out loud with you you know you, you mentioned the various stories that have been coming out over recent years like Rabbi Zacharias. Carl Lentz was a bit of a a different story, as I understand it, It wasn't someone in his church, It wasn't even someone who knew that he was a pastor, but still, you know, problematic in terms of there's an espoused sexual ethic, which seems to be consistently violated by those who are preaching it. And you can go back further, right? You can, you can look at, you know, Bill Hybels of Willow Creek, um, which, you know, is is kind of an ongoing conversation on Twitter right now. Um, You can look at even going back further to like, Ted Haggard uh, of New Life Church um, in, in countless others who, you know, aren't as big of names. Um, in terms of like what's, what's going on there, th- there definitely seems to be some manner of correlation where these individuals who take a very, you know, anti-sex, uh, in, in many ways, anti-sex approach and anti-sex hermeneutics to the way that they understand the Bible— that it's concerning that those same individuals are the ones who um, seem to be the most guilty among us in many ways. And I think that that's telling. And one of the threads that, you know, as I've I've been reading about folks who have had really exploitative and uh, sexually abusive experiences in church, is that often that teaching is used to silence and shame them. And I think that's one of the, the key things that I'm beginning to understand about why these powerful people talk about sex in such negative and dangerous ways. And I think that we can all acknowledge that, that there are ways in which, you know, sex is abusive and exploitative and, and there's not always black and white uh, clarity on, on when that's the case and when it isn't, specifically in uh, realms like porn and the adult industry. But you know, when leaders characterize sex as primarily being something that we should be afraid of and or ashamed of, if it's, if it's not adhering to kind of the given script of monogamous, uh, married, heterosexual sex, you know, I think that, that that scares pastors and leaders. It's hard to know exactly why that is from my standpoint. Yeah, man, that is a tricky one. The conversation, though, about how the teaching itself is critical to basically the cover up of the abuse is what's most problematic to me. The more we continue to frame sex as bad and dangerous, the more victims of sexual abuse will hesitate to make their story known uh, because of the shame that we attach to those sorts of things. And that's disgusting. Like, that is. Incredibly evil and nefarious in my mind, um, and so I think that the only way forward is to change the narrative that we have around sex. To talk about the fact that um, not only are we generally, you know, as a as a human race, uh, sexually sexual and sexually driven, but that this is a way that God has created us to be, and that we can imagine ways to practice that, to live that, um, and to do it in ways that are honoring to other people and honoring to God, uh, that, that don't only have to be abstinence. And there's a, a lot of control by saying it that way that is, that is not able to be grasped. And I think that's scary for Christian leaders. I think that Christian leaders both uh, are victims of and also perpetuate the idea that they need to be in control. You know, that they need to have all the answers, that um, they can prescribe the way that people should live their lives. The result of that, of course, is that you get very homogenous organizations, like we see with white evangelical Christianity. I mean, it's been a conversation for years, um, at least as long as I've been a Christian and been paying attention to church and church culture, that there's a, a problem with a lack of diversity in evangelical spaces. At best, it's segregated, but you rarely see a community of multiple races uh, worshiping together. And the reason for that is because when your whole prescription for morality is based around sins that you're really good at managing,
0: then you're going to get
1: the same kind of people who are also really good at managing those kinds of sins. As opposed to a community that is equally dedicated to seeing God show up, in their midst, working in their midst, despite whatever else is happening. Because, you know, the Bible isn't all sunshine and rainbows. Like it describes really dark and dire experiences. It is these types of lives and worlds where God has always been at work. And we're foolish to think that God requires our moral behavior to be at work in us or through us.
0: I know what you mean about the way that we separate ourselves in the churches and how, how much they lack diversity. And I've been a part of so many discussions about that and what to do to change that. And I do you think people are just, I, I see it all the time, and I struggle with it. And I mean, even the even when you look at like social media groups, like on Facebook, for instance, people want to be insulated by like-minded people, right? They they want people to agree with them and tell them they're right, and 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 vent about the same issues and talk about the same things. And we see that throughout everything. It's just kind of like this perpetuated way things are now, right? You need to find your tribe and your clan and you all have to think alike. And I I go back and I think, well, you know, when the gospels were first being evangelized or prophetized, I mean, when this message was first being spread, it was being spread to everyone. I mean, and we've taken it and, and reduced it down to these little simplistic silly little clicks of things that, we miss the true meaning and what the diversity is supposed to look like. And we say things right. like, Oh, but we have a black member at our church. Or, Oh, there's Hispanic people that come to our church. And as if we're patting ourselves on the back because now we've done something and, and I think, okay, but you still only have the same people thinking the same ideas and you have a Republican church here and you have a Democrat church here. I mean, that's how it is out here anyway. And so it's, that clickiness in the churches. But I mean, what do we expect with all the denominations? And so we run into all of these little (laughs) tribal problems, (laughs) but in, in the same regard, we need tribes, right? Tribes are important to us. We need a community. And I think that was quite clear that Jesus made it. I interpret that much of what he spoke of was about community was about your family was about the people that you love and for me, about the people that you include in your erotic circle, the people that you get deep with, that you're vulnerable with, that you have an amount of intimacy with and a trust that is deeper than with your coworkers or, or, or whomever else you interact with. And so we've kind of lost the focus of the community and, and changed it for the popular clicks and, and then the popular clicks on the internet too, with the likes and right. what have you.
1: Denominations are, you know, if you think about it, they're really just the result of historical echo chambers where Christians in some time or place began to disagree about a particular doctrinal issue and made that not just like what you said about community. Like we all need community and we all need to find folks who are like minded, who we can be vulnerable and safe with and be our true selves. Um, That's that's 100 percent necessary what when it becomes problematic though is when those communities begin to you know draw lines in the sand that not just like there's one there's a way to say hey this is what we believe and we'd like you to believe it too and you know these are kind of the rules of engagement for continuing on in this community and then there's kind of the more sinister side of withholding of God's grace to people withholding of God's you know, blessing even, and, and you see that kind of more in like some of the prosperity gospel type stuff that we see. It kind of feels like it's past its heyday, but it also feels like it's everywhere still. And so, you know, the church has, in, in terms of where we are today, we are where we are because of decades and, you know, centuries of uh, Christian practice. Um, and we, we have a tendency to look back on Christian history and just assume that because it was done this particular way, either for so long or early on, that that is the way that it should always be. And I think there's something to be said, you know, when we're approaching the Bible and interpreting it, there is something to be said for how we think about those who were closest in time to Jesus, how they understood Jesus. Where it becomes problematic though, is when our own history that that really isn't very old, especially for like white evangelical Christians, Our history isn't very old. It's not very dated. You know, it goes back maybe to like the branch that I'm in where it's, you know, very Pentecostal. I I come from the Assemblies of God denomination. You know, the Assemblies of God really traces its roots back to late 18th century, early 19th century happenings and revivals. Even some of our key theology comes from those times like rapture theology. And so what you have is is a church that has been shaped by things over the course of its, of its history. And, and some of those things are very, very problematic and, and very indicative of, of where we are today. As an example, like so much what, what I think has happened with modern day evangelical Christianity is shaped by uh, voices who, who preached particular sexual ethics Largely as a result of retaining God's blessing for our country. And you'll still hear that. You'll still hear some of that language out there if you pay attention. Like a lot of Christians have a deep-seated fear about losing what they feel like is a kind of special status in God's eyes as a country where, you know, I think behind the scenes, if you pull back the curtain, the belief is that America is great, assuming you believe it's great. America is great because we are Christian. Yeah. And that if we lose those Christian qualities, if the kind of moral tenor of the country changes too far to what would be considered non Christian practices, that uh, it's not just our souls, perhaps, that might be in danger, but our country. And that becomes very motivational for many folks. Now, to me, that rings of Christian nationalism.
0: Right? Yeah, I was just going to say that. I was like, that's Christian nationalism, and it's like spreading.
1: Oh, it's mind blowing, like how it, it, in some ways it's mind blowing. In other ways, you know, like I just got done reading Jesus and John Wayne and it's this it's this incredible book uh, that kind of traces out some of the political roots of where evangelicals find themselves today. 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump and it's kind of created this this rift in the church where people feel like, you know, if you're on the liberal side, how could you not vote for Donald Trump? And, you know, that's, that's what, um, you know, a conservative might say. Uh, and then a liberal to a conservative might say, how, how could you vote for Donald Trump? Yeah. And it exposes this, this kind of deep rift within Christianity where so much of how we think about politics hinges on a belief that God has a special place in God's heart for America. Um, and that he is counting on us to stay pretty moral. Otherwise, you know, that blessing or that protection or whatever is going to go away. It's telling when the concern of so many Christians is not the souls that might be lost, to, to kind of borrow their terminology, right? The, the concern is not the souls that will be lost. The concern is the loss of our national greatness. Yeah. indicative of what people really believe.
0: Right. And that this is like a new Jerusalem or the new Israel, and this is God's beloved country. I know right. I, I have been really surprised by how prevalent that narrative has been in just the recent year of like the people that I've engaged with. And I have to kind of really hold myself back because I've kind of, it's been a long time since I've been able to look at how entangled politics in church was. And I was like, that's not, that's not, that's not right for me. And so it's been like, I'd say six or seven years where I was like, they shouldn't be entangled. And so mm. when I hear people talk about this, this Christian nationalist mentality, I think, um, I don't think you understand that that's like saying Rome is our friend. Like, did you miss that part? So I'm able to look at it like that. And I really have. And I mean, some of my dearest friends hold this idea and I'm just, I, I think I side with the liberals <laughs> in this regard, where I say the same thing, how, and it, it's been asked. I mean, I write for um, Patheos Progressive Christian, and that was like the most common type of question asked, like, how can you be a Christian and support Trump? And trust me, I wanted to be there as a defender to be like, let's not judge Trump people. But over the the past few years, it's been hard not to see that sometimes we have to recognize that we've really twisted our beliefs to just fit into these ideas because it makes us feel safer, but it's still buying into the fear frequency. And that's not what Jesus was preaching. But how do you have a conversation about that? And how do you bring this information to surface where people are willing to look at it? I feel like Social media just inundates people with it and there's nothing they can do but believe it anymore. Or they're going to feel like a failure.
1: Yeah. It is such a challenging, a challenging space. And I'm, I'm not without, you know, my own challenges in this space. I have um, close family members in particular, my, my mother who, um, you know, is very much, very much a Trump supporter, which is one thing, uh, more concerning to me is her um, propensity towards really bizarre and far-fetched conspiracy theories um, which which I think many of us are dealing with and especially people who have Christian family members in terms of like what do we do I mean I think part of part of I, see I think that Christians should have political conversations uh, and you'll see me do that on Twitter and and Part of me is a, a little bit surprised to be having this conversation with you because I think we've disagreed at a couple points, which is um, totally fine. I always appreciate your disagreement, but I, I am not afraid to go into political spaces on Twitter, and that's gotten me in trouble and uh, other like, you know, um, when I'm not anonymous and I'm on Facebook and having conversations with friends and family and and pastors and people who I went to Christian college with and all these things. Like, um, I press against a lot of the Christian nationalism that I see happening. Um, and it's certainly not easy, and I, I will not say that I've been particularly successful. I think what I've been successful at is, is not shutting up, because that's the feedback that I've often received, especially as someone who you know, has had aspirations to be a Christian leader. Christians, frankly, do not like it when you push back on their politics. And it took me a while to realize like, oh, that means that's exactly what I need to be talking about at points because it's such a sacred cow.
0: And now I just want to, oh, sorry. And
1: therefore, idolatry. I can't not at times bring it up, but I think that it does matter how we do that. And I have some thoughts on that, but I want to hear your question.
0: Well, I just want to say, it's not that I don't think Christians should talk about politics. As, as much as I have tried, I know you can't get away from politics. Politics is in our lives. But I think what I just want to differentiate here is I just don't like the intertangling. I don't like the, what you said, idolatry that you see in the churches. And that's where I, I feel like there should be a line drawn and that maybe pastors shouldn't preach about it in sermons. But I'm not saying don't have a conversation about it with someone from your congregation because, I mean, people want to hear a message, and sometimes we have to deliver it through different lenses for people to see it. So from there, please continue.
1: Well, and you bring up an important point. I mean, at the end of the day, and and this was a conversation that um, I'm actually really glad that we get to have now because I, I don't think that we saw eye to eye on it on Twitter. There was just a brief interaction that we had where you know, the question was, was Jesus political? And I think you came down on the no side. I'm coming down on the yes side, but I'd, I'd like to unpack it a little bit uh, because I, I wanna be careful about how I'm, I'm framing why I think that Jesus was political. Let me first say, though, that I don't think that Jesus would make political endorsements. The reason why I say that Jesus was political is because Jesus operated in a human space, right? He is in first century Israel, under Roman-occupied rule. There's all kinds of kind of push and pull happening in the culture, certainly a lot of it uh, happening around religious conversations, and Jesus pushes against religious people. He doesn't let them off the hook the way that they're used to and the way that they let each other off of the hook. And so, you know, these religious elites have this history uh, throughout the gospels of continually challenging Jesus. And the questions that they're asking um, are never very spiritual or religious. They're always very political. They're trying to track Jesus so often. You see it when Jesus is walking down the street and Zacchaeus climbs a tree to see him. And, and Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to have dinner with you tonight. And this was a tax collector. Zacchaeus was this tax collector, uh, which the Bible kind of ranks out sins in some ways. And needless to say, being a tax collector was kind of top of the list of people you don't, you know, these are the types of people you do not want to associate with or become. And there's the grumbling that happens among the religious belief. It also happens when uh, Jesus is at a Pharisee's house for dinner and a woman uh, comes in and cries tears, washes Jesus' feet with her tears uh, and cleans with her hair. These are moments in the life of Jesus where the pressure is to fall in line, which is a very political decision. But it matters how often, not just that Jesus pushes back against those narratives, but it matters, too, how Jesus understands his own power and how that differs from how we understand power. Uh, I think the the most telling example of that is when Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate, the uh, religious leaders of the day uh, consider Jesus to be a blasphemer for equating himself to God in various ways and using language that theologically was problematic for them, largely in reference to himself, they can't put him to death. So they turn him over to Roman authorities and say, this man is claiming to be king of the Jews. This is a very political accusation. This is an accusation of uh, a bubbling insurrection that's about to happen. And Pontius Pilate is basically asking Jesus, like, who are you? you know, are you, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, are you asking me that because you, you think that or because someone told you that? And the, their exchange goes on uh, to the point where Jesus says, you know, at, at the end of the day, my kingdom is not of this world. And basically you have no power unless I give it to you type of thing. What Jesus is saying in these moments, uh, it's a resistance to turn his movement political. That's what Pilate was after was, is this a political, are you a political threat? Pa- Apostles Pilate didn't give a fuck if Jesus thought he was God. This is, you know, the, the highest man in power in that area. He does not care whether Jesus thinks he's God. What he cares about, like any earthly ruler or politician is, are you a threat? And Jesus, doesn't answer that question by saying no. He only says, I'm not here for political power. But I think that we can safely say that Jesus and Jesus' teachings have significant political implications, even if we can also safely say that Jesus, despite having political implications with his teaching, uh, is not advocating for a particular political strategy, if that makes sense.
0: Yes, that does. And the way you kind of unfold it like that, I really like the verses that you called out too. So in that I can agree with. When you put it like that, then I can, yeah, Jesus acted as a, if the fear was that he was a political agent and he utilized the political realm in order to do what he did, which is almost impossible to not do, I mean, in our day and age. So right it would it for me I would say it would be silly for me to make that same statement in recognition of how I can't escape politics right like I have I've tried so hard like I'm like focus on the erotic screw the politics right but people are so into it and they, they can't help it sometimes and it's right there and so I mean I had to take a different route I was like okay well I I, I can't resist it anymore, so how can I include it and transform it and reveal it through an erotic lens and show whatever the political problem may be if there is a sensual and erotic solution? And so, I mean, that was what I had to do in order to kind of reconcile that for myself too. So um, all of that is to say, yeah, I, okay, I can say now that I, I agree with that statement that, that Jesus was political. And I- To a degree, I have a great understanding and respect for politics, for government. I understand there are roles, and I'm an anarchist at heart. But I'm I'm a reasonable anarchist, and so I have these wants and desires for a a world where there isn't a government rule and there isn't a need for political authority or presence or propaganda. But I know the world we live in right now is just not ready for that, and so a lot of Aspects, I can say that the government is good for these roles and politics is useful for these things, but does it necessarily advance the kingdom? And that distinction for me can help me better reconcile how I can integrate the two in, in, in my reality without having to resist. I mean, because I think Jesus showed us a, non, a, a life of non-resistance. And so resisting the things you don't agree with really don't help. And so how can we, I don't know, integrate and transform would be a better better way to do it.
1: Yeah, it's, it's such a tricky space. And I think that you're right to feel torn by that, to feel confused. And I think that that'll continue to be the case for all of us for a long time, especially as long as the... Christian machine is being counted on to be political and to be partisan. And that's so much of why, you know, when I do talk about politics, it's almost exclusively talking about it from a more, what would be labeled a more liberal perspective. Now, I actually think that Jesus teaching, while it ultimately has political implications, as I said, like it doesn't result in a a political movement. And I think that it's important to keep that in mind, because if we find ourselves getting sucked into political movements as kind of the defining work of our lives or the defining work to be done to change the world, I think that ultimately we'll be spinning our wheels. I, I just don't know of another way to frame that. But if we understand that while not a political movement, the teachings of Jesus will always have political ramifications because of the human condition of of really what's happening in politics, right, which is, you know, disagreement, sometimes hate, sometimes war, but at the end of the day, not love, then Jesus has something to say in those spaces. And sometimes that's going to go in our favor. And a lot of times, it's not going to go in our favor, uh, because we contribute to divisive things. And, And so part of what makes Evangelical Christianity's current place in the world today so heartbreaking, is how significantly our faith has been co-opted by partisan politics. And it was done so by design. That's the thing I think that took me so long to realize is that the moral majority as a voting bloc, which is kind of a shorthand for evangelical Christian participation in Republican politics, the beginnings of that are really not at all idealistic in the happy biblical, you know, we want America to be great for God sense. It was, we don't wanna integrate our schools and abortion is a galvanizing factor that we can use to garner evangelical Christian support for our politics. And then key Christian leaders along the way, largely televangelist type of folks, but basically at the end of the day, there's money to be made there, right? And um, there's influence to be had there. And it's hard to know kind of what motive ultimately led to key individuals in the evangelical movement, you know, several decades ago, ultimately aligning themselves to partisan politics. And it, and it has happened on both sides, but my own experience is more on the conservative side. So that's where I'm going to spend most of my time talking. That, that has had really profoundly negative implications for the gospel is kind of how I think about it, like, we made, as, as Christians, we made the gamble that political power was ultimately going to benefit the cause of Christ. And we went all in on that bet. And I think today, the fallout that we're seeing from churches, kind of putting politics aside for a moment, but the fallout that we see regarding church attendance and faith in the U.S., those numbers are, are declining. They're looking very poorly for Christianity. And I think that that is the natural fruit of the, the bargains that we made decades ago to throw our weight behind partisan politicians and call it biblical faith.
0: Yeah, and I think there's an opportunity now too, If, but I don't know if it's going to do any good. But I mean, there was a time where it wasn't so much so rooted in partisanship, it was just more or less people telling people, you know, to think with their heart and to to think with what they value and what aligns with their principles. And that's what was what you we were hearing from the pulpits. And now it's, God dang, it's just freaking idolatry left and right, and and so many of the churches. And it almost just reinforces this idea that if you join our church now, you're joining our voting. The, the, the way we vote as well and when you're not giving people a choice then you're going to see the downfall and the demise of the church system as you know it and does it deserve to be rebuilt you know and does it deserve to be repopulated and does it deserve grace
1: <laughs> right I mean yeah you're, you're right in terms of asking those questions you know I'll tell you as I was you know, as I was coming of uh, age as a voter, early on, you know, the the first election that my wife and I voted in was George W. w.
0: Oh, W.
1: Yeah, um, the second time though, because he he beat out Gore the first time,
0: mm.
1: and then I can't remember John Kerry. Kerry. So the Bush Kerry election is the first one that my wife and I voted in, and you know, we're we are at this age, uh, twenty two, I think. So like grown-ass adults, right? I mean, not, not adult adults, but we thought we were adults. And, and we thought, you know, we knew what we were doing. We, we voted Republicans straight on the ticket because that's what we believed Christians ought to do. Later, when, uh, during Obama's first candidacy for the, for the presidency, you know, I had, I had made the decision at one point that I was going to vote for Obama. And, and at the time, I was a youth leader, a volunteer youth leader at a church, and I was upfront about the fact that I was going to vote for Obama. And there was no shortage of concern among these adult volunteers, particularly the adult volunteers who had kids in the youth group. I mean, you would have thought that I had planned to introduce their children to human sacrifice or something. I mean, it was like gasps and confusion of like, how can you do this? Because at the time, like that was the, the conversation was, that to be Christian was to vote Republican. And, and the key issue that was always top of mind and still is top of mind for Christians is abortion. And so being that I voted for Obama, several people called my faith into question. I remember one one of the adult volunteers, you know, kind of a jolly, uh, really nice guy, a bit older than me, you know, at the time, like I said, I was, I was low 20s, 22, 23. He was, you know, 45 to 50, somewhere in there. Really nice guy. He pulled me aside and he said, you know, if, uh, if you don't vote liberal in your 20s, you have no heart. But if you don't vote conservative in your 30s, you have no brain.
0: Oh, um, I've heard that.
1: And yeah, it, 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 it very much like the, the message was being sent loud and clear to me that not only were my own, you know, political inclinations considered threatening to apparently the work that we were doing to teach kids about Jesus, it alienated me from my own community. And that's an important thing to note in terms of like, what's, what's important to people? Because when I read the Bible, uh, you know, when I read about Paul, for example, he says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, uh, it becomes problematic for me to respond to that, yes, but there is American, or yes, but there is Republican, it doesn't make sense to me to set up those kinds of markers of identity as though that's the most important thing about you. Paul is clear that uh, none of those things can take precedence over our shared faith in Jesus. So I think that, you know, as we kind of look forward to combating what I would consider to be idolatry in the form of Christian nationalism, I think that it's going to involve being very patient (laughs) as, as, Uh, difficult and maddening as that is, like being patient with people as they, as they come to the realization of what it is that they've believed and why, um, and to offer grace along the way. You know, I think that unfortunately too often we've all learned very well from our upbringings and tend to repeat the same kinds of behaviors just from the other side. And so like you might have started out as a conservative fundamentalist Christian who became progressive and equally fundamentalist in your progressive faith uh, and assuming that people need to align with you in order for their faith to be genuine, in order to be saved or acceptable to Jesus. When the truth, like biblical theology should teach us, none of us are inherently acceptable to Jesus. And all of us are inherently acceptable to Jesus because it's Jesus, not because it's us, right? And Jesus redeems us. Jesus brings us to life. But none of us have earned that ever. But you would think if you listen to white evangelical Christians for long, you realize pretty quick, oh, they absolutely, we absolutely think we've, we've deserved a place here with Jesus. We deserve it.
0: yep, we we deserve it. And we've earned it. And damn it, we're not going to let it go to anybody else. I know that's, uh. And I was trapped in that idea too. I mean, I'm—I I'm just thinking back about how you know, Christian equals Republican. When I was like, when I was 25, 26, I worked for this steel company, and I had just started dating my husband at the time too, Corey, and he was in the military, and he watched Fox News, and. I had almost suffered my previous breakup because I voted Republican. I voted for Bush instead of Kerry. And my boyfriend at the time was very liberal and very upset and almost broke up with me. And from then on, I learned my lesson. I vote liberal or otherwise it'll cost me a relationship. And so I went into this new relationship and this new job and everybody was so Christian, like including my husband, like asking if we could pray before sex and weird stuff. And I was just like, I've never experienced this, but... I went in there, and that was uh, when Clinton was running and Obama. And I was like, I'm voting for Hillary Clinton. Are you kidding me? A woman? Uh, hell yeah. And all these people needed to stop and correct me, including Corey at the time, and tell me that if I dare call myself a Christian, I'm supposed to be a Republican. And why don't you know this? And I, it was the most foreign thing to me. I'd never heard anyone talk about that. And suddenly, I was in, immersed in this new environment. Where everyone I worked with was evangelical, they they did prayer and and Bible studies for meetings, and I was in this world of like, do I need to be filing like a complaint to somebody about like this is weird to me, and so Corey sat me down and had me go through this whole process of what do you value, and what are your principles and da 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 da, and then told me, well you're not a liberal, you're you're a Republican, you're a conservative and um so i like attached that label to myself and i went with it and i was like i did the same thing i'm a christian which means i'm a republican and yeah i have to i have to stand up and we have to fight for our rights and it's this it's a brainwashing program it's similar to you know the nationalistic ideals they use in the military to convince people to you know dedicate 20 30 lives of service and And I'm only saying that because my husband has said that's what it was for him in the 14 years he gave. So there's these programs that we don't even realize that we are, we are, uh, we succumb to and they're very seductive and they give us all these statusy labels and we feel special and it makes us feel like a select group. And it's, when I look back on it, it's, it's kind of (laughs) silly.
1: Yeah. I mean, silly or not, it's real. Right. And, and I think it took me a while to wake up to this, to, like, to, to see how abusive and manipulative it was to have basically salvation being able to be stripped from you at will if you didn't play by the rules. Right. Because that's, that's ultimately what it comes down to. It's not, it matters how long it takes. For example, when you're having a conversation with someone who's a Christian and they're trying to tell you why conservative politics is the way to go, it matters how long it takes them before they say, you can't be a Christian and vote this way. That is indicative of the extent to which they have, our faith has been co-opted. Going back to Jesus and Pilate, what we cannot say is that what Jesus was about was a political agenda. We cannot say that. Jesus precludes us from saying that. And yet, if the, if the assertion is that in order for me to be on Jesus' side, I also need to participate in this particular political agenda. We know that we have just set up something that is anti-Christ and anti-God. You know, I'm done apologizing for feeling that way. I'm done feeling like I'm the one who's, who's wrong. And I think like so many others, you know, Donald Trump... The the election of Donald Trump and the continued evangelical support of Donald Trump, a man who I would consider to have no God but himself and to to be lacking any and all semblance of moral character, for evangelical Christians to throw their emphatic and full-throated support behind this man, 81%. That's more than voted for... Bush, that's more than voted for Reagan, that's more than voted for uh, McCain or Romney, that many people voted for Donald Trump. These people who I have sat next to at church, I've worshiped with, I've prayed with, it was really eye-opening for me. Of like, you know, it, it, it caused me and so many others to just take a step back from our faith and say, wait a second, what the hell is going on here? because I thought I knew these people and apparently I don't. And, you know, we see very differently about um, this person and and what they're up to. And um, yeah, it was really, it was really debilitating. And so it's, uh, you know, it's been a process to get to the other side of that, to acknowledge that um, Jesus does have things to say that, that will cause us to have to think about the political positions that we choose while also not equating what he was up to with any sort of political party or any political power, so that's a freeing thing to know that not only are are we well within our bounds biblically to question the the intermingling of conservative politics and Christian faith, but we must like we have to we have to wrest Jesus back from those who have co-opted his name to serve their political agenda. And so I think that like from a liberal standpoint, what I don't want to have happen is for liberals to do the same thing and say, you know, in order to be a Christian, you have to vote this way. And it's not even that I don't want people to talk about Jesus in their politics, because I like I said, I think Jesus Jesus' teachings have political ramifications. What I want is a political environment, both on the liberal and conservative side, where we can, we can talk about Jesus and how it is that, that we understand the teachings of the Bible to influence our thinking without getting to the point where we're holding salvation over one another's head, without getting to the point where we're holding faith over one another's head and taking the place of Jesus to say, to, to borrow some of the language from Jesus' parables, like you are... The sheep, and you are the goat, or you are the wheat, and you are the tear. Like we're putting ourselves in a in a very precarious position to to take that authority on ourselves based on people's political leanings.
0: Mm, yeah, I really like how you said that, and I am in agreement Thank with you. that. <laughs>
1: um, can I? Can I? There's there's something that um, I've made a decision for myself that I, I want to spend some time talking about whenever I have the opportunity on a, on a podcast like this, and it'll just take a couple minutes. I want to talk a little bit about why I feel it's important to pay for the porn that you consume. Can I talk about that? Yes. Kind of getting back into some of the space that I've spent on Twitter. One of the things that rather surprised me uh, was my thinking on this particular subject, and it was shaped by sex workers themselves, um, and just trying to listen and learn. Uh, That was a value that I brought into this space and and continue to try to bring into the space. And it's very difficult and it's very disorienting to be committed to just learn from people who are very different from you um, and try to understand their perspectives. But but one of the things that really changed for me early on was realizing that the, the porn that I had been consuming, like everybody else, I think, in the world, turned to free porn sites, uh, namely Pornhub. Um, me too. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, who among us has not? And, and this is despite feeling uh, all kinds of guilt over my viewing of pornography at the time. So early on, um, as I got into this space and, and started to commit myself to learn from porn stars and sex workers, it became abundantly clear to me that there is no such thing as free porn. There is either teasers and advertisers that performers and models themselves put out for the purpose of garnering additional interest. And sometimes those are even full scenes, right? And and then there is porn that is, you know, stolen or pirated and then re-uploaded. And that has been a particular problem for Pornhub. But of course, Pornhub is is one of many sites where this is happening. You know, the, the nature of this particular industry is such that because it's considered to be shameful by so much of society, it kind of operates out of view just because most of us don't even want to look at it, right? We want want the porn when we want it, but we don't want to think too much about how we get it. And so, you know, early on, I, I just learned that, you know, while performers may enjoy what they're doing when making pornography, they're doing it in order to make a living. And not simply because find it enjoyable and obviously you know we could obviously go into plenty of detail about how what we see on screen is is not real sex and is often for performers not their most enjoyable form of sex Um, but you know it's what viewers want for whatever reason all of that to say when I finally came to conclude that my viewing of free pornography was taking food out of the mouths of sex workers and porn stars who themselves are often in the business that they're in because of trauma, because of lacking economic options, and even just because this is the job that they chose. At the end of the day, if I'm consuming free pornography, I am, in my mind, I'm stealing from them. And so, you know, if you have listeners who are folks who enjoy the use of pornography, far be it from me to tell them how to, you know, how to conduct themselves sexually, Uh, Certainly, you know, it's important how we do that, uh, but it's important that we're not further dehumanizing the people whose pornography we consume by withholding from them the just reward for their work. And so early on, I I decided if I was going to watch pornography, I was going to pay for it. Since then, I've stopped watching pornography, which was actually really enlightening to me. Like I wasn't addicted, which is what I you know, assumed about myself as a Christian man who viewed pornography. I wasn't addicted, but I, I certainly didn't have a framework at the time to be able to parse out for myself a, an ethical way to consume pornography. Because in my mind, it was all or nothing, right? If I'm watching pornography at all, then I'm simple and bad. And when I've talked about this, when I've talked about the need for uh, people, and especially Christians, I address Christians directly on this and say, like, you should, if you're going to consume porn, whether you feel guilty about it or not, whether you feel like it's the right thing to do or not, what we can agree is the wrong thing is to steal from people while you're consuming porn. I cannot imagine something more gross and disturbing as orgasming to someone's work without without even having the decency to compensate them for it. I'd love for your listeners to consider how they engage pornography. Um, and, and I get that there's all kinds of nuance here. And, uh, you know, maybe sometime we can talk more about that. Um, and, and what is a, a Christian approach to pornography? Because, um, you know, I have plenty of my own questions there. I don't know that I settled that question for myself. But what I have settled is that um, I, I won't benefit from someone's work without compensating them. And at the end of the day, uh, if I'm viewing pornography, I'm supporting something. I'm supporting an industry. And it can either be the one where the content that producers and performers make, um, they're not being compensated for it, or it can be the one where they are. And I'm going to choose the latter as a matter of Christian conscience. And I would encourage your listeners to do the same.
0: I will join in on that encouragement. And I have to say, I applaud you for bringing this to surface too, because I think it's absolutely important. I was, I was a user of Pornhub too. And it was when I read Dr. David Lay's book, Ethical Porn for Dicks. And I had him on the show too, and just really inspired by the idea that he shared the similar to yours, although you added a little bit more kind of anecdotal perspective to it and that it is stealing from someone. And I was back in the day when there was Napster and when you could download music for free and it was easy to pirate everything. I had like this ethical problem with downloading. Mm-hmm. I just, and so as soon as iTunes came out, I was like, I am a legitimate, I, I am paying for my music. I am not robbing artists because I have such an appreciation for music and I was always like, I, I don't want to steal from people. And I mean, I got in trouble for stealing as a kid. So I had a bit of a kleptomania phase. And just a lot of things over the, the the time of my life has shown me that there are ways that we don't even realize that we're stealing from people or robbing from people and that we are taking from them. And why paying tribute to art, to artists like that. And I will say, I, I believe that pornographers are artists. They understand sex in such a riveting way, but it is important to pay for it. And right now there are millions of women on OnlyFans who are just waiting for people to click on that ethical switch to want to pay for it too. I just want to point out, but I think it adds dignity and honor to the person. And there was, Pornhub had um, a story come out too about how easy it was to get minors videos playing in there and all of the children and all of the, the, the stolen, um, videos that were uploaded from, you know, women who may have consented to their boyfriends, but didn't consent to be publicized on a, on a site. And after that, I really couldn't even go back because I was like, I don't want to be turned on by a child. I don't want to be turned on by somebody who didn't want to do this, who didn't consent to this or who wasn't cognitively aware of what they were doing. And so all of those pieces kind of added up for me. And, and I think if you're going to use porn, you be a responsible adult about it and don't hide it from your partner if you're if you're married or with a significant other and have a conversation about it also because my husband hid it from me and I remember finding out about it and it felt like a betrayal but then once we got over that and we talked about there are so many components that you talk to about with the porn usage, but it's like you have to bring that responsibility into the relationship and you damn well better look at it as a form of entertainment that is worthy of paying for just as you go to the movies on a Friday night, right? Just as you go out to eat, mm-hmm. we're paying for the things that entertain us and bring us pleasure, things that we want to savor and enjoy. And so just want to add on to that. And I would love to invite you back on in the near future so we can have a more in-depth conversation about this. And how do we talk about porn and sex within the churches? I think there are so many other topics we could hit on that would just be an interesting dialogue and maybe encouraging and beneficial for the audience. So let's try and do that. And I enjoyed this conversation so much. I really appreciate that you were willing to share space with me. I really appreciate that we're willing to have a conversation like this, knowing that there were some things that we just didn't see eye to eye on. And I just, I love that you were willing to show your heart and to share your time with me. And so, porn star pastor, I thank you so much for joining me here on Recorded Conversations.
1: Thank you, Danielle. It's been uh, my pleasure. It's it's weird for um, to be addressed as porn star pastor. <laughs>
0: just thank you again. This has been such a great conversation and I feel like I know you better and that I'll probably be less reactive and less of a challenge knowing your heart now <laughs> and and knowing that I can come to you with uh, with questions and I don't have to worry about shame or judgment. And I, and I just want to reiterate, that's kind of the purpose of the podcast too, is to show how we can have conversations with people that we don't 100% agree with, um, but we can have an authentic connected dialogue and kind of see where we're coming from so that we can eventually see we're all kind of aiming towards the same thing, which is love. And I just see yeah. that you reflect that in, in your tweets and in what in your interactions. And I really appreciate that. So thank you, PP.
1: You, <laughs> you are so welcome. Um, thank you. It has definitely been fun. Um, I will say Danielle, I, <laughs> Here's a, here's a fun confession. Around the time uh, you first asked me to be on your podcast, it was somewhere in that same kind of time range, within a couple of months maybe, uh, someone, had, someone else had asked me to be on their podcast. And um, at the time, I was very tentative about what I was doing on Twitter and didn't know if I wanted to continue. Um, and still struggling a lot through, you know, where was I going to land on some things? And, and I've taken some time to figure those things out. But at the time, I, uh, I I agreed to do this podcast. And can I just tell you how much I blew it? Like this person, and I'm not going to name names because I, I don't want I don't want any like hard feelings. Like I I know I blew it. I just I didn't know what to talk about. The the conversation didn't flow. Um, and so I consider this my first real podcast and uh, I feel like we did good.
0: I think we did good. You did good. Yeah. You, you could have fooled me. I would have never known this was your first.
1: Well, there you or go. that you
0: blew one or anything. You're a natural artisan of conversation.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, it has certainly been my pleasure. And yes, let's, uh, let's keep in contact about um, some follow-up conversations. I can't promise to, Say anything enlightening during those conversations, but uh, certainly, <laughs> certainly think that they're worth having. All
0: right. This sounds good. I will be in touch and thank you again.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Danielle. Bye bye.